Today's reading is Luke 14, 1 and 7 through 24. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to share a meal in the home of one of the leaders of the Pharisees, they were watching him closely. When Jesus noticed how the guests sought out the best seats at the table, he told them a parable. When someone invites you to a wedding celebration, don't take your seat in the place of honor. Someone more highly regarded than you could have been invited by your host. The host who invited both of you will come to you and say, give your seat to this other person. Embarrassed, you will take your seat in the least important place. Instead, when you arrive, you will take your seat in the least important place. When your host approaches you, he will say, friend, move up here to a better seat. Then you will be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. All who lift themselves up will be brought low, and those who make themselves low will be lifted up. Then Jesus said to the person who had invited him, When you host a lunch or dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers and sisters, your relatives or rich neighbors. If you do, they will invite you in return, and that will be your reward. Instead, when you give a banquet, invite the poor, crippled, lame, and blind and you will be blessed because they can't repay you. Instead, you will be repaid when the just are resurrected. When one of the dinner guests heard Jesus' remarks, he said to Jesus, Happy are those who will feast in God's kingdom. Jesus replied, A certain man hosted a large dinner and invited many people. When it was time for the dinner to begin, he sent his servant to tell the invited guests, Come, the dinner is now ready. One by one, they all began to make excuses. The first one told him, I bought a farm and must go and see to it. Please excuse me. Another said, I bought five teams of oxen and I'm going to check on them. Please excuse me. Another said, I just got married, so I can't come. When he returned, the servant reported these excuses to his master. The master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go quickly to the city streets, the busy ones and the side streets, and bring the poor, crippled, blind, and lame. The servant said, Master, your instructions have been followed, and there is still room. The master said to the servant, Go to the highways and back alleys and urge people to come in so that my house will be filled. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will taste my dinner. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. This morning, we heard a parable about a great banquet. I want to suggest that this parable shows us what salvation is like, what it means to be saved, and how to live in light of God's salvation. The parable of the great banquet displays before our eyes the blessings of the kingdom of God, even as it warns us against excusing ourselves from those blessings. I want to read this parable three times. First, I want to read it as a story about what salvation is like, about a kingdom where the lofty are made low and where the first are made last where the low are lifted up and the last are made first. Second, I want to read it as a story about how we live here and now in light of God's salvation, 
how the gospel actually opens up a new way of relating to God, to others, and to creation. Third, I want to read it as a story about the whole Bible, a story about the limitless hospitality of God. Are you ready? First, the great banquet is a story about what salvation is like. This might be a good time to open your Bibles or your apps to Luke chapter 14. I trust that you'll follow along as we're going through the parable. I'll make references to scripture every so often. In the scene where Jesus tells the parable of the great banquet, we need to realize that he is actually at a banquet, at the home of a Pharisee. And before he tells the parable, uh, Jesus tells the guest and the host in so many words that they should consider themselves the least important, the least deserving, the lowest in the here and now, so that God will lift them up in the resurrection. These are provocative words, and you imagine an awkward silence around the dinner table. And perhaps for the sole reason of cutting through the awkward silence, somebody says, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. This is a familiar image in ancient Judaism. It's an image of salvation. It's an image of the coming kingdom of God. Uh, One early rabbi puts it this way. It's on the slide behind me. This world is like a lobby before the world to come. Prepare yourself in the lobby so that you may enter into the banqueting hall. The coming kingdom of God is like a great banquet, is what this rabbi is saying. Or we might pay attention to another early rabbi, Jesus. In the scene just before this parable in Luke's gospel, Jesus himself describes salvation as a great banquet where people come from east and west, north and south, to join in a feast with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets. And now Jesus tells a parable about this great banquet. And this parable shows us what salvation is like, what the coming kingdom of God is like. The parable has three scenes. I'm looking now at verse 15. 16, rather. In the first scene, we see a man make preparations for this great banquet. It's not just any banquet, mind you. It's a great banquet. And he begins inviting many, many people to come to his feast. He gives them plenty of advance notice. And finally, the day of the banquet comes. Everything is prepared. We might imagine tables set out with colorful uh, pillows for guests to recline at. A calf is slaughtered and prepared as a great feast, which was a rare delicacy in the ancient world. We might imagine wine is set out in abundance for these guests. Everything is purchased, everything is ready, everything is prepared. In the second scene, verse 17 and on, we see the man who is hosting the banquet send his servant to everyone who is invited. Come, says the servant, everything is ready now. One by one, people decline the invitation that they had previously accepted. The first says, I I just bought a field. I, I have to go see it. I regretfully decline. 
Another says, I just bought five pairs of oxen. I need to go check them out and make sure they're okay. I regretfully decline. Another says, I just got married, so um, I won't make it. You need to realize how socially outrageous these responses were. This is a world where social relationships are governed by honor and shame, where gaining honor was more valuable than gaining wealth, where being shamed was more costly than losing all you owned. The shame from all the declined invitations would far outweigh the monetary cost of wasted wine and spoiled meat. In the third scene, beginning in verse 21, the servant returns to the host. The servant tells him that everyone has rejected his invitation, and the host is understandably angry. But what the host does next is not only unexpected, it is absolutely unheard of. He refuses to receive shame from his neighbors. He refuses to play by the rules. Instead, he tells the servant, go out into the city, invite everyone who will come to this great banquet. The poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame, people with no social standing, no resources, people who are desperate and needy. The servant goes out and he does. The host tells the servant again, when there is still room, go out to the furthermost parts of the city, the city limits where the poorest of the poor live, the most marginalized of the marginal live. Insist that they come to my banquet. And the parable ends with a shout to the heart of hearing. We might imagine at this point, Jesus is sitting around this banquet with a group of Pharisees who are well-to-do, and we imagine him looking up and looking around at them, saying, For I tell you, none of those men who were first invited shall taste my banquet. When we read the parable of the great banquet as a story of what salvation is like, we focus on the people who are invited. This way of reading it says, This is what salvation is like. The last shall be first. The lowest shall be lifted up. This is a helpful way to read the parable because Jesus has just told the guests at the banquet how to act at banquets. You heard this this morning. Look at Luke 14, 7. Jesus notices that the guests choose the best places of honor for themselves. Jesus tells them they should not do this. They should consider themselves lowest of all and take the lowest seats. They should consider themselves lowest so that another might lift them up. Jesus tells them, all who lift themselves up shall be brought low, and all who make themselves low shall be lifted up. So when a guest around the table says, blessed is everyone who eats bread in the kingdom of God, Jesus tells a provocative parable. He asks, who is this everyone? Again, we might imagine him looking around the table, suggesting that this everyone is not to be taken for granted, the people around him. It's not to be taken for granted that everyone are the first or the highest, but the last, the least, and the lowest. 
In this interpretation, the parable works to move us away from our desire for pride of place, away from our desire to be well-respected by everyone, away from our desire to live in comfort and financial security, away from our desire to be considered, for whatever reason, better than other people. The parable moves us away from these desires because the people who were invited first decline the invitation. They miss out on God's great banquet. We do not know their motives. We only know the excuses they give as to why they cannot come. They have other things to attend to. A field purchased, a team of oxen to examine, a family to build. Whether these excuses are good or not is almost irrelevant. Because of their excuses, the first are made last. The loftiest are made lowest. The parable, strangely, uh, makes us want to identify with a different group of people. The people who are invited last. The people who, in the end, celebrate this great banquet. In short, the parable uh, makes us want to be the poor, want to be the least important, want to be the lowest. This is remarkable because human beings expend a remarkable amount of energy trying to be the highest and the loftiest. We can simply think about the way we talk. It's built into our language. Being high or on top or uh, up is good. Being low is bad. So uh, we talk about moving up in the world. We talk about upward mobility. Uh, We are promoted at work into higher positions. We're happy when the stocks rise. We uh, We celebrate students at the top of their class. And... Uh, conversely, to be low is bad. It's undesirable. When bad things happen to us, we might say we've uh, fallen on hard times. Uh, we're, uh, we're taught to avoid uh, low-income neighborhoods and sometimes people. What else? Uh, we avoid restaurants with low ratings on Yelp. So this parable captures us with a stunning reversal. Uh, It makes us want to identify as the least and as the lowest. Because when it comes to salvation, the first, uh, excuse me, the last are the first and the lowest are lifted up. What then is salvation like? Uh, If it is not the loftiest who are first in the kingdom of God, if it's the lowest who are first, then what is salvation like? What might God be showing us with such a dramatic reversal of the world's values? I think God wants us to see that salvation is a gracious gift, something unexpected, a gift so staggering, a gift so great, so beautiful, so capable of producing life and joy that it actually makes us realize our poverty. Salvation is such a great gift that it makes us realize how woefully inadequate our attempts are to make something of ourselves. It shows us how pathetic our attempts are to lift ourselves up. Because God 
has given us everything in Jesus Christ. The forgiveness of sins, uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the communion, fellowship of believers, hope of the world to come. These are gifts that cannot be bought. They cannot be deserved. They cannot be achieved. They're given to us as a gracious and staggeringly generous gift. And in the face of such a gift, if you're willing to accept it, we are all poor. We are all the last and the lowest. So live as though you are the least deserving, the least regarded, and the least important, Jesus seems to be telling us. Because those who make themselves low will be lifted up. Perhaps you are in a place where you have already realized your poverty. You have an acute sense that you are the lowest. Uh, Hear the words of Jesus in the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are poor for those, uh, for the kingdom of God is for them. But if you should think, the parable seems to tell us, that you're receiving this gift because you've somehow proved yourself better, more deserving, uh, more worthy than other people, for whatever reason, perhaps because of what you've accomplished or because of how well-liked you are or how beautiful you are or because of your education or your family or your politics or your taste in things or your wealth or possessions or nation or race, If you think any of these things make you better or more deserving than other people, then be warned, the parable tells us. You'll find you are last in the kingdom of God. You'll find that even uh, as you enter the kingdom of God behind the rest of the company of saints, not only your sins but also your virtues will be burned away. You'll find that you have excused yourself from the blessings of God that you've preferred uh, your field, five teams of oxen or family over the blessings that God generously gives us. On that day, you'll find things that you thought made you great, in fact, made you last. All who lift themselves up will be brought low, says Jesus. Second, I want to read this as a story about how to live in light of God's salvation. This is actually a second way to interpret the parable. This interpretation focuses on the host. In this reading, the host represents us. This reading says, to live as someone who has tasted God's salvation is to share the blessings of God's kingdom with everyone who belongs to God. This is also a good way to read the parable, to focus on the host, because just before Jesus tells the parable, he turns to address the host of the banquet he is at. Uh, look at Luke 14:12. Jesus tells this host in so many words that he invited the wrong people to his banquet. Which, if you imagine what it's like to be around Jesus, imagine sitting at a, a dinner table with him and he tells the host that he invited the wrong people. You're thinking, really? Uh, Jesus tells the host uh, that he only invited people like himself. He invited his friends, his relatives, and his wealthy neighbors. These people, Jesus says, 
will repay you, if not with a reciprocal meal, then certainly with honor. Jesus tells the host to invite people uh, who cannot repay him, people he would never think to invite, the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Jesus tells him to invite those who are lowly, uh, those who are lost and last, and to do so is to find happiness and blessing, since God repays such a host at the resurrection. In this reading, the host undergoes a conversion of sorts. In the first scene, we see a man who only invites people to his banquet who are like him, his friends, his relatives, his wealthy neighbors. This was not out of prejudice. It was merely cultural convention. The reason you hosted a meal, a great banquet in the ancient world, is to show that you and the people you invited are the same kind of people. And it was a, a thing that you put on to gain honor yourself for, for yourself, status in the community. In the second scene, we see a crisis happens when uh, the host is rejected. The very meal he hoped would bring him honor now threatens to bring him shame. In the third scene, we see what the host does in response to this crisis. He does something utterly audacious, utterly bold. He will no longer let the cultural conventions of honor and shame define reality for him. Instead of receiving shame from his neighbors who are like him, from everyone who declined his invitation, the host decides to welcome everyone into his home. Actually, everyone. The great banquet is not ruined because everyone rejected him, because everyone was not everyone, if you catch my drift. And when he invites everyone, not only the wealthy, but also the poor and marginalized, he finds himself celebrating a great banquet with an unexpected and unlikely crowd. Read this way, the parable is a story that moves us away from a way of life that is uh, constrained by cultural convention, that is uh, obsessed with comparing ourselves to others. And it moves us more towards something like freedom, uh, to move toward everyone with the hospitality and generosity of God. When we read the parable this way, uh, the question I think it raises for us is, who is everyone? I think it is easy for us to imagine that everyone who God desires to bless through us are basically people who are like us. And if the people we seek to bless are not like us, it can be easy to call it ministry or charity rather than friendship or companionship. And I'm speaking deeply personally right now. Uh, the more uh, particular we get about this, uh, the more complex the matter becomes, which is why I'm being very suggestive. Uh, but the question I think this parable raises for us is this. Uh, what if our world doesn't get to define who everyone is for us? That is, uh, everyone who we can basically call friends. 
If Jesus gets to define who everyone is, what happens? What new possibilities arise? I want to leave that as an open question. Finally, I want to read this parable as a story about the whole Bible. Or rather, I want to look at the story of the whole Bible through the story of the great banquet. When we do this, we find a God whose hospitality is limitless. We find a story that begins with original blessing and ends with a renewed humanity celebrating a feast and a renewed creation in joyful communion with God, Christ, and the Spirit. Perhaps you've heard the story of the Bible told as though it begins with original sin. When we begin the story with original sin, we hear a story about a God who is for us, a God who redeems us from sin, who rescues us from death and the devil. What we miss, however, is the kind of life that we are rescued into. What's on the other end of the rescue? When we begin the story with original blessing, we see what makes eternal life so desirable in the first place. We begin the story in Genesis 2. This story of creation begins with God, the heavens, and the earth. There was, at this point, Genesis tells us, land but no life, no trees, no plants, no fields, no animals, no rain, and of course, no human beings. If you want an image of this, think Arizona or New Mexico. So what does God do with this barren wasteland, we might ask? He creates a garden paradise. He creates humanity and commissions them to care for the garden. And the Bible tells us all the trees that spring up in this garden are good for food. The image at the beginning of creation is that of a God who lays out a great banquet for humanity, a banquet to be shared between human beings and God in a good creation. God is with his creation and has invited all of his creatures to be with him. The great banquet is laid out. Everything is ready. In the next scene, we see humanity decline God's invitation to this great banquet. In the creation story, the first commandment that God gives to humanity is actually uh, to eat, to eat from every tree of the garden, which is stunning. God's first commandment is to enjoy his abundant banquet, his, the riches and the depth of the life he sets before us. But God gives Adam and Eve a second commandment that follows closely on the first There is one tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, from which humanity is not to eat. And we might be curious as to why. And I think our curiosity about the reason for this prohibition reflects our fundamental mistrust of God. If God withholds something from us, anything from us, we are inclined to think that he's withholding something that's good that we would be better doing with. And we quickly forget God's staggering invitation into the fullness of life at his table in the first commandment. 
we think we'd be basically better off independent, better off being in charge ourselves, better off preparing our own banquets. It is no accident of history that the fall happens in an act of eating. Here we see humanity dismiss God's invitation to his great banquet. We see humanity say, we will prepare our own banquets, thank you very much. And God's curse fulfills this desire when God says, by the sweat of your brow, you shall eat bread. The curse is not God's final word to humanity. It never is. We see God stretch out an invitation to his great banquet again and again and again and again. God creates a new people, Israel. God promises Israel a land, a land that flows with milk and honey. It's an image of abundance. And God promises to be with Israel in the land. It's a restoration of the garden paradise. It's a restoration of the great banquet. In the wilderness, after Israel leaves Egypt, God provides them with bread and even quail. In the annual feasts of Israel, God reminds his people that the rain and the sun that make the crops grow, the abundant produce of the land are gifts from God. He, God even commands his people to celebrate a lavish meal together in his presence for no other purpose than celebrating a meal together in his presence. If that sounds too good to be true or something you aren't likely to find in the Old Testament, listen to these words from Deuteronomy. Go to the place that the Lord your God will choose. Uh, spend money for whatever you wish. Uh, oxen, sheep, wine, strong drink, or whatever you desire. And you shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your household rejoicing together. In this feast, <laughs> we see an image of where all creation is headed. A holy and joyful communion shared by God and humanity and a creation overflowing with abundance. And yet we see humanity continue to find reasons to decline this invitation. We excuse ourselves from the blessing of God in this banquet. We uh, would rather live into the curse rather than the blessing. We will prepare our own banquet by the sweat of our brow, thank you very much. Words from the prophet Isaiah sum up our tendency to do this. God looks at our own banquets and he says, Your feasts consist of lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine, but you do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. Therefore, my people go into exile without knowledge. Their nobles are dying of hunger and their multitude is parched with thirst. What we see when we try to prepare our own banquets is not abundance, but famine. In the third scene, God extends his invitation to everyone. God comes to us in Jesus Christ, us who are the lowest, us who are the last, us who are the least. Jesus Christ descends as bread from heaven, the Gospel of John tells us. Whoever feasts on him will never hunger. He becomes to us living water. Whoever trusts in him will never thirst. What else can we say 
we could talk about the Last Supper where Jesus lays himself out as a feast for the people of God that restores us from exile. We could talk about how Jesus, one of the first things he does when he's raised from the dead is eat with his disciples. We could talk about the church in Acts, which is marked off as a distinct new society precisely because they break bread together. Or we could talk about the marriage supper of the Lamb, the joyous occasion that all creation is heading toward, where we enjoy a feast with God, with each other, and with a renewed creation. In Jesus Christ, the peace between God and humanity is restored, along with the fellowship and communion that we share. Listen. God is inviting you into something remarkable. Communion with him. God invites you to be with him. He has come to be with you. God desires to be with you. And God invites you into communion with his body, the church, where everyone is invited to experience his blessings. And God invites you to join him and all God's people at God's table to celebrate a great banquet. This leaves us somewhere in the middle of the story, not at the very beginning and not at the very end. We live in the in-between, where God's invitation and hospitality is still open for us to receive. And it's still possible that we will excuse ourselves from this blessing. The parable of the great banquet tells the story of the whole Bible, and ultimately it's a story about a God who will do everything it takes to be with us. A story where we find ourselves and our confusion and our resistance to God overcome, overcome by God's limitless hospitality, overcome by the riches of God's blessings, overcome by the supreme joy of communion with the Holy Trinity among a holy people at a great banquet where the whole of creation is renewed. Thanks be to God.